There is too much mobile engineering work to be done and not enough mobile engineers. As a result, a talented mobile engineer might make much more money than a similarly talented web developer. There are many other disconnects between this world of mobile engineering and the world of backend and web development. And we've reported on web development far more than mobile on Software Engineering Daily. So I wanted to get a holistic view of that mobile ecosystem and why it's so different from the web and backend ecosystem. Nathan Esquinazzi is a co-founder of CodePath, which is a continuing education program for professional engineers and designers. There was so much to explore in this episode, and it's really wide-ranging. We talked about the economics of mobile, the state of cross-platform in the future, such as would Facebook build a React Native phone? Would that make sense? We also talked about the increasingly blurry line between mobile and IoT, and voice interfaces, how voice interfaces are going to impact this world of mobile. Really great episode, and I enjoyed it a lot. Nathan Esquinazzi is a co-founder of CodePath. Nathan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks for having me. There is a lot more mobile engineering work that needs to be done in the world than can be completed by the number of mobile engineers that exist. There seems to be a difference between the supply and the demand. Why is that? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And uh, it's something that really kind of led to the starting of CodePath for us uh, when I was at a previous startup. Um, we were having just a really, really hard time finding iOS and Android developers. Uh, this was maybe like in uh, about maybe five or six years ago. And I think the the core reason is is pretty simple. It's that the demand is just outpacing supply. So mobile 10 years ago versus today is a very different world. I mean, I always say this in in some of my classes that if you look at the world 12 or 15 years ago, um, you know, a smartphone was was something of a of a luxury item, and then today every single person uses them as their primary computing device, or many people do who use uh, you know different forms of technology. So I think it's part of it is just this huge demand that <clears throat> uh, grew overnight, and uh, and then just developers are are sort of playing catch up uh, to learn about these new platforms, companies. Um, there's actually a lot of challenges in switching platforms from web to mobile as well. So I think it's a, kind of a confluence of factors. Does web development advance faster than mobile development? Because it seems like there's so many more people that are doing web development, and y- you get this weird situation where, where web seems to advance faster, and um, it sort of compounds because... There are uh, the tooling around mobile development doesn't seem like it's as um, I guess usable. There's more onboarding to learning to become a mobile engineer. Give give some more contrast on the difference between mobile engineering and web development. Yeah, so that's that's something we spent a lot of time thinking about um, as we've sort of focused on the transition from engineers who are currently working on web platforms and moving to mobile and and kind of watching the challenges that they face. I think one of the most obvious things, uh, just uh, a bit of my background, you know, I I spent most of my career doing web as well. Uh, In particular, uh, I was a big Rubyist doing Ruby on Rails and a ton of other web platforms before that. But um, one thing that I always found was that web felt um, the ecosystem felt very mature. Uh, so, uh, you know, the the tooling and in general, the, the sort of architecture of it felt 
fairly stable, uh, even though obviously it was changing rapidly as well. And there were a lot of different platforms. I think with mobile, the challenge we face is again, just coming to the fact that these tools are so new. Um, you know, even though there's been uh, some time now for these things to be developed, I think the first challenge you face is just strictly in the environment. So I think the environment is foreign. It's different. Uh, I know as a Ruby developer and many other forms of web development, uh, primarily takes place in a, in a lightweight text editor a lot of times, uh, and the IDE is not so heavyweight. Um, and mobile is very, very IDE heavy, in particular iOS. Um, you know, if you do modern iOS in the way that Apple prescribes, we're talking about you spending at least half your time in a UI, uh, an actual UI environment with an Xcode, uh, which is a little bit foreign, I think, often to web developers who are used to spending almost all of their time in a text-based, you know, code-first environment. Uh, that's not at all how UI and mobile works. And um, uh, that, I think that can, that there's a bit of a, a a challenge there. I think often the tooling feels immature. Um, the ecosystem feels a little bit less developed, although it's getting better uh, in the last few years. So I think there's a lot of different factors. I also think the the paradigm and the way that you architect mobile applications, the best practices are not always lined up with the practices that people were doing in the web. So we see this a lot where what was potentially a, a positive pattern on the web may or may not necessarily be a positive best practice on mobile and vice versa. So, you know, there is a little bit of a growing pains there as you adopt any new platform. The tooling pains have been the biggest challenge for me. I've done a little bit of mobile development, and you're right that the difference between making a code change to your React.js application or your Ruby on Rails application and then refreshing the page or restarting the server occasionally, you might need to do that, that is so much less painful than the like compilation and perhaps deployment to your device process. Or, or also, if you're making an update to, the, to an actual production application, you have to go through this App Store review process, at least for iOS. I don't remember how it is for Android. I think there's still some degree of a review process. And this was, as I understand, the primary motivation for Facebook building this React native thing because they wanted to be able to ship changes faster because they wanted to be able to sh basically ship uh, you know, an app that has a native feel but can have components within it be updated uh, just like a web application. So with React.js you know, you, or with React Native, you can just ship you can push code to your some JavaScript endpoint or some uh, web web API, and your mobile application doesn't have to have that uh, that code within the binary. It can request it, and it's like this. And you just think about like the amount of effort that Facebook has had to go through to get to React Native just to solve this problem of we should be able to have more dynamic deployment. I think that alone suggests that there is. There's some aspects of the mobile environment that are a little a little dated at this point, and dated for good reason. Like there are very good legacy reasons we could go into that, but nonetheless, it just creates these frictions, and I think that leads to some of the scarcity of the mobile engineers. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I mean, um, you know, long before React Native, uh, I, I've been you know doing mobile for a long time, even even before smartphones, playing with like Symbian and and um, you know different Palm OSs and so forth, and uh, 
I will say like, you know, there's been a holy grail search for exactly what you said for a long time, right? Even before the modern rise of iOS and Android, people have been trying to figure out how do we take web technologies and how do we apply them to a mobile environment? Uh, I remember um, Facebook did a, a huge push with HTML5 based apps. Uh, and I was, you know, attended the F8 conferences when they were kind of pushing that technology. Prior to that, I, I was a big fan. Uh, I was I was exploring PhoneGap, and that later became Apache Cordova. So I think there's always been this longing um, by, especially by web engineers who look at mobile exactly like you said, and they feel that mobile is, you know, uh, more challenging to like create that feedback loop, and the tooling is not as uh, comfortable to them. So they've been trying to kind of bring uh, mobile into the web sphere. I think it's a very very common. Uh, instinct. And I think Facebook has done a great job of finding the right balance between speed, um, native compilation, and the web technologies. And I think that's why it's gaining so much adoption now. This to me is why I think that assuming we have the smartphone being the beloved device of consumers for the next five or ten years, if we have a good another decade of smartphone usage, and don't we? If we don't move to augmented reality in the next decade, I have a prediction that Facebook will come out with a phone, and they will put React Native first, and it will be a smashing success. Maybe we can get into that later. Uh, we don't need to get into the crazy predictions at this point. Let's talk a little bit about continuing education and what you are doing at CodePath, this mobile engineer scarcity that we're talking about is in some ways an opportunity for developers, developers who want a new lease on their um, their career can retrain as a mobile developer through CodePath. Explain let, before we get into CodePath specifically, explain why continuing education is so important for developers. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, um, I think every developer knows almost without even thinking about it that the technology landscape is changing just radically fast. I mean, when I first started out, uh, I won't go through my you know every engineer has their their whole technology stack journey, but you know when I started out, I was doing Microsoft 100% Microsoft Technologies .NET. I was doing WinForms, VB6. Uh, that's kind of how I, I started doing you know, professional work. And I mean, uh, what's funny is there's there's these repeating themes. So no matter which platform I switch to, you know, usually it fits within a category. But um, you know, the landscape is rapidly changing. Skills that are useful, like desktop development, in in one decade might completely change form, transform, mutate. In the next, uh, even if it's the same platform like desktop or web, the technologies you're using are radically changing. I remember first learning JavaScript uh, and the world that I learned back then, comparing that to what it's like to do JavaScript today, it's practically unrecognizable. So I think what happens is every engineer learns to self-learn fairly quickly. I think that's a, almost a given that each engineer is learning on their own often. I mean, I learned almost every platform by myself uh, for the most part, um, you know, with a book or a PDF, just kind of cranking and burning the midnight oil. And what I just saw again and again and again, I think a lot of engineers can relate to this is, first of all, it's it's not exactly the most efficient mechanism by which to learn because I would hit a stumbling block or I would uh, do something and it actually, it compiled, but it was the wrong way to do it. 
but I wouldn't necessarily know it was the wrong way until much later because there's conflicting reports and often you can only gain best practices through experience. So, you know, this happened to me. I could go through personal experiences of this uh, at every startup I've ever been at where I'd be learning a new technology. I'd learn it quickly. I'd get things done, but I'd be doing it in a way that just fundamentally was not the right way of thinking about it or approaching it for that platform. And so I think uh, what kind of pained me going into mobile coming from web was just how grueling it was, quite honestly, how grueling it was to learn. Um, it was painful. It was, it was, it was, uh, there was a ton of roadblocks at the beginning of it. It didn't really make sense. There were things I was doing that I was doing totally inappropriately for the mobile environment. And it, it just occurred to me, and this was true for, uh, my, my co-founder who was working with me at, my, at the previous startup I was at, um, when he was learning mobile, he had the exact same experience. And so it kind of occurred to me that, I wished I had a more natural way to learn from people who were already experts, right? I mean, I was watching webcasts and videos, but um, I, I really wished I could have had code review and, and, and expert mentorship and people teaching me best practices so my learning of new platforms could be more efficient. I think a lot of engineers look for that, but it's hard to find. Um, so often, you know, you, you go to open source, uh, which is a great way to get feedback and so forth. But I don't know, a lot of times, you know, I, I'd just be hungry to learn a new platform and I'd be learning it, but I just feel like maybe there's this vague hint that I'm doing it wrong. Um, so I think that's a big part of it is just um, there's not a lot of opportunity necessarily for knowledge transfer, expert knowledge transfer in a one-on-one -on -one or personal environment outside of a work context. And so it was, a, it was a feeling of pain I've always had. And talking to other engineers and, and my now co-founder, I think it's a pain we both shared all the time as we were learning new technologies is like this, this way, is there not a better way, a more efficient way? Uh, for me to learn something new as I'm stumbling around, you know, trying to keep up with the latest tech. You're describing the l same learning process that so many people have found valuable in coding boot camps, and you're drawing also a comparison to how people learn at work, kind of the mentorship process. When you're onboarding at work, if the company has a structured onboarding process, there's obviously... There's often a mentorship uh, process where you're working closely with people and you have a lot of room to fail, you have a lot of room to get a feel for the standards of code review and how things are done, and you are bringing that to the continuing education area in these eight-week development classes for iOS and Android engineering that is CodePath. Explain in more detail how CodePath works and who is who is going through CodePath. Why do they use CodePath as a way to get started in mobile when they're already an experienced engineer? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So just to kind of give you some context, the way CodePath started was me and my co-founder now, Tim Lee, uh, we were... Um, we just came off of a startup that was acquired uh, called Miso, which he, he had co-founded. And we uh, he had learned iOS uh, on that uh, it, it, during the process of Miso. I learned it um, at a previous startup before, kind of stumbling through it, but never really felt like I knew it well. And uh, after multiple years, I think three, four years of working together on it, we both felt much more comfortable with mobile. We started doing mobile consulting. And we realized that in those preceding three years, we had both gained a tremendous amount of knowledge. And so the way the courses were set up in the early days was actually really simple. We thought to ourselves, learning mobile was really painful for us. What would we have wanted to expedite that process? I mean, it took us probably two years. 
I would say, of just like painful learning to feel like we really understood mobile and we could confidently build apps that were maintainable. And we still didn't know everything. I mean, we were missing a lot of knowledge. And so, um, you know, we thought, what would it look like to make this process efficient, right? We're engineers by at the end of the day. And so what does an, an efficient knowledge transfer process look like? So me and him wrote down all the things we had learned, um, all the pitfalls, the best practices, the anti-patterns, you know, everything that you might put into a book. And we asked ourselves an interesting question, like, how would you design an educational experience designed specifically for seasoned engineers that would pack the three years or two years of knowledge that we had learned, the painful experiences and so forth, how would you pack that into a more compressed form? And that was the core of CodePath. How do we take everything, not not just the code, right? This is not about the code only. This is about thinking about UI and user experience and product and collaborating with other engineers and organizing um, your code in the right way. So there's a million little things that we learned at a startup doing mobile. And I wanted to learn how to compress that down into a very unique form that other engineers could have uh, in order to avoid the pain that we went through. And that was really the core of it. Uh, when we started out, that was the idea we had. We didn't know if we could do it at that time. And uh, the people who go through the course, just really simply, is uh, just to kind of quickly give you some context for this, uh, at the point where we created CodePath, I was volunteering at a, a lot of events, a lot of different things, just teaching because I loved it. And I would teach a lot of beginners. And I, I, I absolutely love teaching um, beginners at varying levels through a lot of different organizations that do amazing work. But what I realized was there was not really any avenue for me to teach my peers as much like there were meetups and there were like little lightning talks I could give but the reality was there was not really a medium for me to teach other engineers um, and that was kind of odd to me because there were a lot of mediums to teach aspiring engineers which I think is great right bringing people into the tech field but there were very very few opportunities to teach other engineers a technology that I knew well and so I think the combination of those two things how do you efficiently transfer knowledge uh, in a way that engineers would love and how do you work with an experienced audience of you know, maybe they've been doing engineering for 10 years, maybe 15 years, maybe five years, right? These people have seen many different platforms uh, and asking the question, what would they want out of a class? Uh, it was very interesting to us. I have done a number of interviews with people who go through this process of learning to teach people uh, an, an engineering concept. I've talked to these people who do... Um, like I talked to the guys who created Zipfian Academy, which is eventually acquired by Galvanize, and they were teaching people data engineering. And what I got a feeling for was that through teaching, they learned their field so thoroughly. And for I think there are a lot of people right now who are getting started as entrepreneurs or um, I don't know, business people, whatever word you want to use, you know, young people like you and me who are looking at this world and like, oh, there's a lot of businesses waiting to be started. And you think about the long term, and you're like, you know, a great place to start your career as a person who's going to be building businesses for a long time is an avenue where you can teach people. Because not only do you get a deep understanding of a specific domain and you and you are enforced in a way it keeps you honest if you have to teach people something it keeps you totally honest because they're going to ask you every single question and you can't you can't bullshit it so it gives you a deep domain expertise it also teaches you communication skills how can you convey the rudiments of a complex topic 
very efficiently. And to me, this is like such a great backbone for, I don't know if I'm, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, projecting my own uh, aspirations onto you, but I get this sense when I'm talking to a lot of people who are starting educational type of companies that they do have a longer, longer term vision in mind and they see the education style business today as a really, really good place to start and get their footing as a business person. Does that, does that apply to you? Yeah, so on a number of fronts. Let me start with your first point, which is that teaching is often a way to accrue a different set of skills. I I actually would take it even farther. Um, Think about this for a second, right? This is something I often like to think about. I think it's really interesting. And I don't just say this because I I run an education company, but think about the skills that an engineer needs to uh, eventually develop their careers, right? Um, I've worked with many startups. I've worked with bigger businesses. I've worked with contracting. Um, I would argue, and I think a a lot of people would argue uh, vehemently, that often the reason why engineers struggle in an environment ha- uh, within a, like a work environment or a, a collaboration environment has very, very little to do with the code and has everything to do with interpersonal skills, um, communication skills, um, and, uh, you know, uh, f- effective leadership, right? So thinking, and then, you know, thinking about these different skills, right? Uh, communication, leadership, right? Like uh, being goal aligned, um, working together, good interpersonal skills. These are exactly the kinds of things that you need to be an effective teacher uh, and to be an effective mentor. So what I think is very, very clear to me, at least, is not only do I think that teaching uh, is a form of, uh, of of pushing your mastery, I don't just mean that a little bit. I don't mean like it pushes you a little bit. I, I would honestly say, I've been doing CodePath for four years. I actually don't even really believe, looking back now, I don't even really feel like I, I really understood the mobile ecosystem, even though I was building apps and I felt confident then. Uh, I realize now how fo- how much folly there was in that confidence. Uh, and I really did not understand mobile uh, in a comprehensive way until after I started teaching it. And it was a direct result of teaching it. Um, but I also would argue that the exact skills that engineers need, the exact skills they need to build leadership ability, to build communication, uh, to build thought leadership, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is exactly the same skills you need to be an effective teacher and mentor. And they have very little to do with your your technical mastery alone. Uh, and I would actually argue being an effective engineer has little to do with technical mastery alone. Uh, I think too many engineers, not not all obviously, but many do undervalue that, that other side of the coin of what it means to be an effective engineer, an effective person collaborating, how do you resolve conflict and so forth. And um, I would also say that, yeah, education companies, to your second point, are some of the best ways to educate yourself on on how to um, uh, build an effective business. So I love uh, CodePath. I love what we're doing here for a lot of reasons. But one of the simplest ones is we're a bootstrapped company. Uh, we've never had to raise any money, which I was you know proud of. Four years in, we've, we've been 100% bootstrapped. And the reason for that is because an education business is at its core a services business, right? And I like that because it's it's a business that is a business. It's uh, I know it sounds funny, but like obviously I've been part of many startups that were um, that were not really businesses in the traditional sense. They had an idea and they wanted to raise money, but they didn't necessarily have a, a f- effective vehicle for for pulling in revenue up front, which is totally fine. I mean, I, you know, I've been in a number of startups like that, but I liked that CodePath. It was a services business where we could do a variety of different things that directly tied to revenue. Um, so that teaches you how to build a, a business, which I really liked. Um, gives you an, a little bit more flexibility in how you 
uh, are, become sustainable as a company. And, and of course, as I mentioned, uh, for me at least, and this is, you know, specific to, I think not everybody, but for me, um, it also gave me an opportunity to do, to do a more balanced diet of activities, not just coding, but also teaching, mentoring, speaking. It really pushed me on the areas where I was weak. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that as well. Those four years of experience that took you from not knowing about the mobile ecosystem to where you are now, what was the gulf in what you knew about the mobile ecosystem at the beginning and what you know now? What are the things that you didn't know you didn't know? Yeah, it's a, it's a, such a good question. Um, so I think there's three different categories of things that I did not have any idea that I didn't know. One was just very practical. It was um, just best practices that I just never stumbled onto. So uh, libraries I should be should have been using or patterns or architecture concepts that I just, just for whatever reason, was not exposed to um, and that were pivotal in building maintainable code bases. The second one was what I call just knowledge gaps. Everybody has these, right? But I had built mobile apps of a particular type, a very particular type. And what I realized was that I knew a certain things, like certain use cases very, very well. Um, so for example, there were certain things I had done 10 times. And because I've done it 10 times, I knew it like the back of my hand. But like anything, I haven't built every type of app. So there were a lot of different things, specifically like app use cases, right? Whether it be, you know, transactional payments or, uh, you know, in-depth or, uh, you know, uh, um, working um, on a particular flow for an app, right? That I just never had to build. And I think a lot of engineers can relate to that. And as a result of not having to build the UI and not having to have built it, I just didn't have a lot of knowledge of those components. Um, so I just had a lot of gaps in my knowledge. Um, and then the, the final one, the third one was, um, and this is an interesting one, is just a, a lack of understanding of the the ecosystem in the sense that this like um, understanding all the services and SDKs and understanding all the different tools and instrumentation and analysis and performance uh, visualizations. There's all these cool tools. I just again, I just not been ex not been fully exposed to uh, in the environments I was working in. You don't call CodePath a boot camp. Can you differentiate between the mechanisms of education that you are trying to administer at CodePath and those at a boot camp? Because you take like, you look at Hack, something like Hack Reactor, which is a self-described boot camp. Hack Reactor is, is, is intense uh, and it takes people um, a lot of effort, a lot of time to finish and it's condensed into 12 weeks, I think. But people come out the other end knowing mobile development quite thoroughly. Distinguish between a boot camp and what you're trying to do with CodePath? Yeah, it's a it's a very fair question. And, you know, we we know the Hack Reactor uh, uh, founders actually pretty well, and, and I love what Hack Reactor does. And uh, I, I would say uh, that, um, quite honestly, the, the reason we, we, we sometimes stray away from the word boot camp just has more to do with the audience than anything else. So um, as you're probably well aware, most boot camps, right, I can't speak for all boot camps, but most boot camps have two properties. One of them is that they're they're trying to get you a job, right? Generally speaking, and two, they're generally generally teaching a beginner a more beginner audience, or at least it trends beginner, right? Uh, for example, um, you know, I don't know a lot of seasoned engineers uh, necessarily that are that are uh, attending like all all the boot camps. Oftentimes, because uh, I actually used to volunteer at boot camps, um, I would find that it, it generally trended towards people 
uh, which I think is great, who are aspiring to be engineers and then get a job at the end, right? Um, so th this is just fundamentally not what uh, CodePath is. And so I, I wanted to differentiate it in terms of the, 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 the wording because it's just different. So for example, um, the audience for CodePath are people who are already fully employed as engineers, generally speaking. So these are people who are already working, generally speaking, as engineers, you know, two, three, 10 years into their career. Um, many of them are already, you know, are working at great companies. They're working at Google. They're working at Dropbox. They're working at Airbnb. They're working at all these major companies. Quite honestly, not all of them maybe even want to do mobile. You know, maybe they they just have a side project or they want to work with a nonprofit or they just want to have something fun to do on the side, right? Maybe they're not even looking for a job. Maybe they are, right? Um, you know, maybe they have five years of experience on desktop. Maybe they have 10 years in C++. Maybe they have 15 years working in embedded systems, right? So there's a wide spectrum, but the audience is just fundamentally different and their goals are often different. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Some of them do want to transition into mobile at their current company. Others want to found companies, but uh, it's not a job placement program in the same way as other boot camps, and it's not traditionally it's not focused on aspiring engineers so much as it's focused on seasoned engineers who are looking to either dabble or transition to a new platform. Does that kind of make sense? So it's it's primarily just differentiating against the other boot camps. There are a lot of these boot camps. There's a lot of code schools these days. Does it feel like there are too many, or do you think not enough? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, and the other thing I would mention, which I, I think is uh, unique, and then I'll, I'll get to that, is this is a bold thing we've done that I don't think any other uh, program has done that I'm aware of, except for maybe a few uh, um, uh, outside of San Francisco. And what we do is we actually don't charge uh, individuals ever. So in four years, I've never charged an individual student a dollar uh, in, in all of the time CodePath's been around. I don't charge in the beginning. We don't charge at the end. We don't charge after placement. We, we never charge. And that's something that it seems a little weird at first, I think. And then going into the boot camp question, um, and I'll get to the other thing later, is um, uh, it's a great, great question. And I think that here's my perspective. So I don't think quantity is the question. And I just want to be totally honest here. Like I am a very, as an engineer, obviously, many engineers are data-oriented, results-oriented. So what I want is this. I want a world where um, companies are not making broken promises, right? So it's for me, it's not about quantity, it's about quality and it's about results. So if there's a boot camp, if there's a hundred boot camps or a thousand boot camps or 10 boot camps, uh, and they're all keeping the promises they make, they have effective practices, they have high NPS, um, they're getting, they have high success rates that they're measuring. Um, and they're, 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 like I said, keeping their promise to people, then I, I, there should be as many of those as possible. But I think what, the problem is, is that in any, in any nascent or relatively new industry, there are, I think, fundamentally um, data collection problems that can lead to quality control problems. And so I think uh, where uh, companies in general, but also boot camps, where they fail their promises or where they can't meet the promise they make to aspiring engineers and students, where they, don't, they fail to prepare them for the industry, um, I think that that actually ends up having potentially a negative effect as well. So I think it's just about being honest about how to measure success. What are they? What is success to an individual boot camp and to the larger ecosystem? And and how do we measure for quality and control for quality? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I do think there are so much education to be done um, in the 
coding ecosystem, whether it's for people who don't know how to code right now or people who want to learn more about a specific vertical like mobile, go from perhaps go from being a web developer to being a mobile developer. There is a ton of opportunity. Um, I want to open up the conversation a little bit to some other areas of mobile. Um, I'm going to start with cross-platform mobile. I did a show about Ionic a while ago. What's your sense of cross-platform? This is where you have some way to write a mobile application once, basically, on two platforms, on iOS and Android. This would be the holy grail. Um, is it catching on? Are there? What are the most compelling cross-platform tools that you are seeing these days? Yeah, it's a it's a fair question, and and that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I've been seeing kind of these attempts at cross platform or web based for for a very very long time, and I've used almost every one of them, you know, from uh, PhoneGap, um, Ionic, uh, and, and many others, actually even preceding that, uh, that were kind of that kind of evolved into this this new generation, and uh, I think the uh, the reality is that they are all effective tools for some people. Um, and it's just like anything where I think there are places where those tools are are, are great, are really excellent. In particular, um, if you're coming from a web background or a non-native background, right? And you're in a business, uh, say you're in a startup or, an, or a small, you're an employee at a small stage startup or a founder. The reality is, just the simple reality is at that early stage, the product is what matters. The technology really is just a byproduct of, of an experiment that you're ha- you're making about if this company is going to be viable. The product is the core. So I would honestly say to somebody, if they're an engineer, a web engineer, and, and they're testing a product at a startup, they should use whatever technology or tool allows them to build that as fast as they possibly can. Because it's not about the technology, it's about the product. And it's about testing that product as quickly as possible and getting feedback. So uh, I've seen many, many engineers start companies or, or, or in early stage companies um, using stuff like Ionic or PhoneGap to build web-based apps um, that were at that time at least not necessarily, you know, they're not the, necessarily the end-all be-all uh, in terms of performance or in terms of usability or in terms of native feel. But um, they were they were not bad, and they allowed them to test the product quickly, which is more important. Um, so I think within a context of of product experimentation, um, things like that, any of those tools are really really awesome. And there are examples of companies growing from there into building, uh, keeping these same tools and expanding them to um, very very high performance environments. Right. So Facebook was doing HTML5 work at a very very high end scale. What I will say is, um, I think that. Uh, it really depends on your situation, right? If you look at most big technology companies um, where they have big teams and they have resources and they can afford to um, invest in in building out these teams, I think often um, there are pros and cons to, to unifying into one code base uh, because the platforms are fundamentally very different. And I think people who who, who don't understand how different the Android and iOS platforms are, might think, oh, this is going to be great. I'm just going to write this once uh, and uh, it'll work roughly well on both. And that's a great mentality in the early stages. But when you start to get to scale, when you start to get to you know having big resources as a company, there's, no, uh, there's still to this day um, no direct replacement for large-scale maintainable uh, apps that feel 100% like they 
belong on that particular platform. So I think if you look at the, just the, the, the vast number of, of medium to large companies, I think you'll find, you know, obviously a, a wide array of technologies being used. But um, I would say the majority of the big ones, I mean, we work with a lot of companies, right? Whether it be um, Uber, Airbnb, Pinterest, Twitter, um, you know, Yahoo. I mean, we've worked with a lot of companies in Silicon Valley. And I would say it's like, you know, by and large of those companies, right? 90% are almost entirely native with some experimentation in React Native. Um, but I would say, uh, I'm not saying none, obviously. There's a wide number of companies out there. But of the companies we work with, like these, you know, these big name companies, I would often say that the majority of their code is is pretty much native, um, like native iOS and Android, or it's React Native, and that's pretty much it. Like I don't, we don't walk into like you know a lot of these companies and and, and stumble into you know PhoneGap or or Xamarin necessarily. Again, though, I don't have anything against those those frameworks. And in smaller uh, company contexts and in, in in alternate company contexts, I've seen them work really really well. The Ionic person I was talking to, he said that Ionic worked really well in these enterprise environments. Like you take a company, giant company like State Farm or Procter & Gamble or John Deere, where they just have so many people doing these uh, niche uh, knowledge worker jobs, and when they can get a domain-specific mobile app built for their internal enterprise application, it can really uh, improve the workflow for somebody, like for, you know, somebody working at a tractor factory, for example, where, and and they're on the assembly line, and they need to do some logistical stuff related to the assembly line, it would be really helpful if they had a mobile app where they could just kind of understand what's going on in the assembly line. That's a type of situation where you don't need really flashy UI, you just need a very simple app uh, and in that type of scenario, having just a cross-platform Ionic app that's very simple, it just displays the information that you need, um, can be quite useful. Um, but I, I would love to talk a little bit more about React Native, though, because React Native is something that excites me a lot. About a year ago, I did a lot of shows about React and React Native, and um, I don't know what has happened in the year since then. I also went to, I think, React Conf is what it was called, and I um, saw some of the presentations around React Native. It was quite exciting. Um, and for those who don't know, React Native is this effort to basically bring React, which is the Facebook's UI platform, uh, to basically a full-fledged development platform. Uh, it started with React JS, which is a front-end. It has kind of become the front-end web uh, JavaScript um, uh, du jour platform and uh, it's they've built out support for for native so basically a way to write your react components whether you're writing them on mo on moat for for web uh, uh, even if you're just writing them for web and you can easily transfer them to becoming native uh, native components and that required them to really get into the weeds of how iOS works and how Android works and really some incredible uh, software engineering that they did to get React Native off the ground. Where is that project today? How is it doing? Yeah, it's a great question. And just going back to your previous point, I, I think that's an uh, with Ionic and and the context of a of needing a easy, simple app uh, within a context of an enterprise or within a, not, a less technical company. I think that's a great, great point. And I've seen this used. This is one of the contexts that I should have mentioned explicitly. That I think is is a perfect use of 
but honestly, either responsive web. So like, you know, it's amazing how much you can change workflows um, using something like Ionic or PhoneGap or responsive web. Um, just giving people access to software on their phone will often radically change their behavior for the better uh, within almost any context. Uh, it's really interesting. And, 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 you know, if there was more time, I'd love to, there's nonprofits that we've even worked with where just a simple mobile responsive app could completely transform their workflow and data entry and data visualization. And I, I just think, uh, yeah, um, any context like that is the perfect use for uh, whatever gets the job done quickest, right? I mean, it doesn't need to be fancy. You don't need animations here. The bottom line is we need an easy way to let people use what they were doing on the desktop computer on their phone. And anything that enables that is is just, I think, transformative often. Um, and then the second thing is relating to React Native, your, your question now. Um, so, I, you know, we work with Facebook a lot and I have a immense respect for the React Native team. I love React Native. Uh, we've been working with a lot of companies like Airbnb and others who are experimenting with React Native and, and doing really amazing work. Um, I think it's an incredibly promising platform. Uh, we're actually in the process of building a curriculum for it uh, right now, um, and we hope to be running uh, alongside our native courses, the React Native courses. One of the best parts about React Native, and then I'll get into a little bit of how it's doing, um, one of the best parts about it is that if you are already a, a JS, a JavaScript React developer, We've seen firsthand just how smooth the transition can be from React.js on the web to React.js on your mobile phone. And and even though it's a very smooth transition, there is a learning curve uh, for sure, no, no question, especially around the UI and the product and so forth. But what I think is really unique about it is just how much the tools transfer, just how cleanly the tools, the ecosystem, the libraries transfer. So, man... Does it make uh, transitioning React JS web developers to mobile just so much easier, right? And I think that, that that alone is just very, very powerful when you're in a company where there's a large number of JavaScript developers and, and many fewer mobile engineers. So a lot of companies are experimenting with React. And I would say it's a thriving ecosystem. Um, I'm seeing more and more excitement about it. Uh, we, we, we get requests for it all the time. Um, a lot of companies we're working with are experimenting with React Native now. Um, and, and, you know, Facebook's just been doing a phenomenal job uh, managing the community around it, growing the community around it and React itself. Uh, and I think the wins within Facebook, you know, seeing the work at Instagram and other companies in React, I mean, it really does prove that, you know, React allows you to use web technologies, I would say arguably for the first time, in a way that that matches the speed and the experience, the user experience of of native, and I think that that's really really interesting. Let's assume that in ten years we are still going to be using mobile phones that are at least analogous to the devices we have today, or maybe it's something that's just on our wrist. Uh, I think we're still a little bit. We it's going to be a while before we have augmented reality. It still feels like that's pretty far away. Maybe not. Maybe even if we have augmented reality, this conversation pertains. Um, but you look at React Native, you look at what you just said, like this the onboarding process from React.js, which people love, by the way. People love React.js. I don't hear people raving about the iOS ecosystem or the Android ecosystem the way they rave about React. I remember when I was at F8, the Facebook CTO, I think, Shrep, is his nickname, he was talking about how when people come to him and they talk about what they're excited about in Facebook engineering, they don't talk about Oculus, they talk about React. 
and not to mention that React uh, people are working on React VR. It really feels like the tool to rule them all. I don't want to have drank too much Kool-Aid, but and also I get the sense that Facebook has some combination of micro, Microsoft DNA, perhaps from the Bill Gates early investment or that Microsoft early investment in Facebook, uh, and um, Zuckerberg, it seems, um, inspired at a very base level by Bill Gates's business strategy. Not to mention the there seems to be a, uh, animosity between Facebook and Google built into the DNA of Facebook. Facebook seems hungry to dominate ecosystems, and I have such a hard time imagining Facebook ignoring the potential for getting into the smartphone business. And the smartphone business would be pretty easy if they had React Native going, and if basically the premise of React Native was, look, you write your application uh, on React Native, and it deploys to Android, it deploys to iOS, and it'll run in its best fashion on the new Facebook platform. And maybe it has um you know like a facebook platform that puts javascript first it's maybe, maybe it's got some very i don't know some web assembly integrations that makes um does this picture that i'm painting make any sense to you or does it sound completely crazy <laughs> well I can, I can say it definitely doesn't sound completely crazy i totally get what you're going for i mean i was a big fan of the palm os actually uh, and i knew some of the people on the palm os team um, and I thought what they were doing was was very, very interesting uh, in terms of a web first platform. And I actually think, um, you know, obviously, you know, greatly underrated in terms of some of the innovations that they made. And uh, I, I think that um, uh, this idea that you're, you're kind of getting at that React is gaining momentum, I think is absolutely true, right? I mean, I don't know if you all, I mean, I'm sure you remember this. I'm sure most people who have been doing web for a while remember this, but there was a time in the early, early days or, you know, earlier days of JavaScript, obviously there was a time when there were no frameworks, but then there was the rise of this whole slew of frameworks. Uh, I remember using many of them, MooTools, Prototype, I mean, you name it. There was like probably 15 or something. I didn't use all 15, but I probably used maybe eight or something, right? And what you saw was sort of this, uh, not universally, right, but some convergence over time towards certain players. Others were falling off and others were gaining steam. And you could kind of see it, it started becoming like a prototype versus MooTools versus jQuery battle. And then that eventually converged to most people, I would say, moving towards uh, jQuery, right? And I, I think you see this a lot in, in ecosystems um, where eventually you find these convergences, obviously not always, but um, I, I think it's too early to say, but I will say that I think that we're already seeing, I think many people would admit that you're already seeing a little bit of a consolidation behind a few of these big players in the JavaScript space. And um, you know, I think it's too early to say who's the front runner. I think there are some really interesting ones um, you know, that people still love, Angular, Ember, uh, React, and, and obviously many others I've used <laughs> Um, Backbone and Batman that are a little bit a little bit more uh, uh, lesser known now, somewhat in terms of uh, active usage, but still being heavily used. And um, but I do think that you know it is important as an educator and as a you know as engineers to think about where's the excitement, where's the interest, and you can look at this through commit history and activity in the community and so forth. And many of them still have very active communities, but I, I do think React is definitely a technology to watch. And I, I do think that a React Native, I mean, React Native allows you to deploy apps to the Play Store and App Store 
um, just as easily as na as normal native does, more or less. And so you don't even really necessarily need a React Native first phone. Um, but uh, but I definitely see what you're saying, right? In terms of an optics or angling perspective, um, you know, who knows uh, uh, what Facebook will do, but. Um, but I, I do see an opportunity there for you know them to continue to push React Native in a whole variety of different ways. And I, I agree with you that even if in 10 years we're not using a phone in exactly the way we understand today, I would argue that um, the same technologies will be um, at least still around, still present, right? So whether that be uh, you know Java and Android SDKs, right? You already see this with Android TV or Android uh, Auto. Um, or other Android extensions or the watch, I think the ecosystem will 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 survive even if the actual medium shifts a little bit. And so I think it's really, really important. And I want to just maybe add one extra thing there, which is uh, don't underestimate the importance of still learning mobile native. Um, I, I actually think the best React native engineers that I know uh, also know native mobile. Uh, the reason for this is is very simple. It's because native mobile is more than just code. Native mobile is a mindset, and it's also a set of components that React Native is modeling against. So React Native is modeling against existing widgets and components. And if you don't understand the underlying vocabulary for Android and the underlying vocabulary for iOS, too many times I've seen people who either just fundamentally don't understand the underlying platforms, which leads to all sorts of problems, or they just completely miss... Um, the 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 components they should be looking for in React Native because they don't understand how something's done in Android. I've seen this time and time again in code bases where everybody involved does not know the native platforms. So my message to engineers would be, um, you know, absolutely learn React Native, but but do not underestimate the importance of of learning native iOS and Android as well. don't seem to recognize yet how much of a killer app voice is. And I have been vacillating between iOS and Android. Um, every every phone I get, I switch back and forth between the different OSs, and I've been doing this for like six years or so. And um, the Google voice recognition, I also got a Google Home a while ago. I've tried Echo. The Google voice recognition is 10x better than anything else that I've tried, and I feel like this is a killer differentiator. I feel like if it's another couple product cycles where Google has such a dominant hold on voice recognition, there's really going to be a shift in the um, in the market from where iPhone is perceived as the high-end phone of choice to the Pixel as the high-end phone of choice or some other Google phone. What, what do you think of that prediction? Yeah, I think you're, you're touching on something which, so, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of, uh, of seeing these emerging technologies. And what I think is interesting is, is that I think over time, what you see in any, in any situation is you see a unifying ecosystem. So what I mean by that is I think that if you look at things like the Echo or the Home um, or Siri, I mean, it's, it's undeniable, right? It's, it's absolutely undeniable that, that the technology companies that are the largest and most successful are betting big on, on, on voice, right? I mean, like literally I now have, you know, you have Siri on the latest MacBook, 
right? You have voice controlled in the car. You have voice control in your home. You have voice control with your, you know, with almost every aspect of technology coming out. And I think what's really interesting to me is kind of what you're touching on is, is you know, um, I think there are different companies have different advantages um, in terms of that integrated ecosystem, right? Every company realizes that there is an integrated ecosystem coming, an internet of things, if you will, right? A smart home. Every single company realizes that. I mean, all the major ones, right? I mean, like, but they can't all obviously get into it. And the ones that can, they get into it in different ways. So for example, I think Google, I would, I would say arguably Google, obviously Google, Amazon, and Apple have the, the, the most powerful weight there right now. But I think you touch on something interesting, which is I think today it's hard to distinguish between um, the voice assistants 100%, right? Like you have Microsoft has Cortana, you have Apple, you have Google, you have Amazon. I mean, they all kind of work roughly the same. But I think what's uh, not not exactly, obviously, there are differences, but roughly. But I think what is interesting is, is, is as these things progress, I think you're exactly right to think about two things. One is the actual voice recognition. Two is the neural system, the machine learning and neural net systems that come online in increasing sophistication that allow the conversations to become more, um, di- you know, conversational in tone or to just become more integrative with my overall experience. So someday I, be- I believe that there, there will be very limited uh, division between a phone and the home assistant and the TV and everything. I mean, I think most people would agree that there's a unification already happening, right? Um, but I think it's going to become more and more um, uh, unclear where the phone ends and my Google Home begins, right? Um, so I, I think that uh, all these different pieces will come together, the recognition, the increasing sophistication, but also the increasing integration. And that's where I think undoubtedly Google has not just the advantage, but it's almost like a home run advantage, right? Because they already know about your emails, your calendar. They know about just every conceivable aspect of your life. So just imagine, right? I mean, don't don't imagine the Google Home today, right? Imagine it in 10 years and just think about how much data it's a little scary to think about, but uh, but think about how much data it will have about you, how sophisticated the machine learning will be, um, and how valuable that will be, and how how like again, how unifying the phone and the the home assistant will be. So I don't think people will see a combination. They'll be basically the same thing, right? So I can use apps uh, with voice. I can use apps on my phone. I can use apps on my watch. I can use apps on my augmented reality device, right? But at the end of the day, I think the 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 platform will be the same. I think the Google integrative advantage will eventually overtake. But you know, again, it's it's impossible to predict. Completely agree. You just think about the the battlefield shifting as it shifts to voice you know Google, apple had a competitive advantage for a long time because they made they're so good at these intuitive uis but when the battlefield shifts to not being about a a visual user interface and it's more about this this voice user interface that's kind of undefined territory and moreover it's about the quality of these machine learning algorithms that google has been investing in more for longer than anybody else, um, and it's really more of a back-end systems problem than it is like a voice. Inter- I mean, sure, voice interface design is a new thing, and it's going to take a lot of work for people to get there. But um, Google has such such competitive advantage. Anyway, we don't need to slobber over um, Google. <laughs> this is not a consumer. It's so funny. Like I I find myself bleeding into consumer device uh, show more and more, and I really want to avoid that. So. Um, <laughs> Um. Do, do, so in this shift, but okay, this shift to 
what's going on in the Android versus iOS ecosystems from a developer's point of view? Like, um, when you t- when you contrast the developers that spend all their time in iOS versus the developers that spend all their time in the Android ecosystems, can you give a synopsis for those respective environments? Like, I know in in the the iOS environment, people love Swift. Swift is a super enjoyable language to use. I think people it got the highest ratings on Stack Overflow. Um, characterize the modern iOS engineer versus the modern Android engineer. I think it's a really interesting question. Um, and you know, I think more and more, uh, I like to encourage people to learn both platforms. Um, but if you if you talk about them as, as kind of distinct, I think the easiest way to think about it is that um, both platforms are really characterized by just immense change all the time. So for example, if you look at what it was like when I first started iOS, we were using Objective-C. It was entirely code-based. Literally, back then, it was considered an anti-pattern to use the UI editor. So it was actually a bad idea. Nobody I knew in iOS back then when I started out in the early days used a UI editor to create their layouts. And uh, everybody wrote it programmatically in Objective-C. So you can imagine, right, comparing that against, if you look at the iOS ecosystem today, um, not only just Swift, which was a big shift, but even just Swift 2, Uh, And then Swift 3, which just came out, have significant differences. Um, And going from the world I knew best, which was programmatic, entirely written in code views, to what we look at today, which is storyboard, which is almost entirely UI-based UI, uh, you know, layout development. Um, so, So the shifts are immense. And so I would say both platforms are characterized most by change. And I would say that there's a fairly diverse group of people. I would say a lot of... Um, mobile iOS developers, they come from sort of an Apple lineage in the sense that they often have experience with either uh, no prior technology, so that iOS was their first, or they come from a world where they were already familiar often with the Apple ecosystem and Cocoa. Um, I would say that that's, I would say, often true. So often that'll bleed into um, the ways that they think about iOS. I think Android is very different. I think Android tends to be coming more from um, uh, a web background. So people who were primarily Java developers or people who were maybe even Symbian, C++ developers. Um, And so I think the ecosystems are a little bit shaped by the backgrounds of people who are active in the community, right? And I think there are different people active. But nowadays, over the last, you know, five to 10 years, the ecosystems of both have broadened such that it's, I think, very difficult to make um, generalizations about either one. I would say that I do think there are you know, fundamental differences in the ecosystem itself that bleed to the engineers. For example, you know, as obviously as a given, Android is a very uh, open ecosystem in the sense that like, you know, the Android source code is itself even open. And so there's a very strong open source mentality there, even with the core platform that you just can't really have with iOS, um, I would say in the same way. And I would say Apple and iOS tends to focus, as you kind of pointed out, um, on prior- prioritizing and sequencing differently. So iOS focused focused on first getting the UI right, and then building out their their sort of their ex- their developer accessibility and extensions. And Android, I think, did it a little bit differently. They came from first principles on developer extensions and developer accessibility and and uh, those types of things. And it took them a lot longer to catch up on the design and UI front. Um, so I think there's I don't know if that makes sense, but that those are some of the major things I think. Um, shape those platforms. It makes a lot of sense to me. I did a show recently with this robotics company, and they were telling me that 
Android IoT is the Google plan for IoT devices. Like, there's a platform called Android IoT. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, yeah, uh, there is. Um, and I mean, it's you know, Apple to be fair has their own uh, smart kit, smart home environment as well, home kit, right? And so I think both are making this play, which I think is a great idea, by the way. I think it's a obvious idea. Going back to what I was talking about earlier with the kind of natural unification, right? Is is creating frameworks that allow for standards to emerge so that it doesn't matter whether I'm using a Nest or I'm using, you know, which for my thermostat or I'm using, um, you know, uh, an I, you know, uh, an IFT switch or I'm using any number of different home technologies, my, you know, smart lock and, and they're all plugging in to these rich frameworks that allow you as a, as a, as a user to communicate with that technology via voice or via your phone or have it be automated with triggers. So I think this is just a natural progression. And I think both Apple and Google want to own the home, uh, as we were talking about earlier. And I think that these types of frameworks uh, and the Internet of Things framework uh, that you know Android is, is, is working on now actively is just a natural progression of that. Okay, last question. How do you determine what phone to buy? Well, I'm actually a bit like you in that I... I used to rotate between phones, um, so I would actually go with the, you know, um, I would go with like a reasonable device iOS, and then I would go to a reasonable device Android, and I would just back and forth each year. And you have to like A/B test tradition. it. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I, I mean, it was obviously a little bit of a pain um, because you know there's a there's a little bit of a learning uh, um, sort of uh, task you have to do to get things set up again. But I think for me, uh, what I'm looking for in a phone, I think for everybody, what they're looking for in a phone is different. I think. Uh, uh, for me, it's a, it's really about um, uh, identifying a phone that I think is going to uh, just almost become invisible to me, right? Like a phone that's going to not crash, not slow down, um, not get in my way, right? And I think a lot of people are like that. And I would say now, we're, I mean, things have come a long way in, in, in the last 10 years, I will say, because I would say that now, quite honestly, whether you pick you know, a flagship Android device or a flagship iOS <laughs> device. I mean, these are amazing phones. I mean, I, you know, I, I have, yeah. uh, since I'm in the industry, I have both the Pixel and the iPhone 7. And I just, I can't tell you how much I love both phones. And I know a lot of people try to make it more divisive. Like, you know, they hate on Android and they love iOS or vice versa. Yeah. But I, I really can't say that I, I have a favorite um, at this point. I would say that what I love about them both is that they're amazing phones. And what I love about Android is that the lower end phones are much more accessible to the developing world and the emerging markets. And I think that that is so, so important. And, you know, that's a whole other podcast of talking about, um, about how this has transformed lives of people who have never even seen a computer necessarily, seen a desktop. And for the first time are g given access to this immense ecosystem of the internet and, and digital technology through Android and, and often would never uh, have the opportunity to have gotten an iOS phone. So I think, I think they're both really, really interesting ecosystems. And I think depending on who you are and where you live and which market you're in, I think there's kind of uh, de facto choices for that audience, if that makes sense. Not to mention the broader down market accessibility of Android gets more training data for the voice recognition that we've already discussed is probably ahead of iOS. But again, another episode. Um, Nathan, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily, and it's been great getting to know you these past couple weeks. Uh, I recommend people who are interested in checking out uh, Learning Mobile, um, check out CodePath, and you also have uh, some hiring platforms, um, if, if that's correct, or is that public? Can I publicize that? No, yeah, we, we do we do uh, do our best to help 
uh, both companies and alumni of ours, uh, you know, connect opportunities where possible. So, you know, obviously mobile is hugely in demand and uh, where possible, we do our best to, you know, expose alumni to interesting opportunities. So always interested in chatting with companies looking um, to either figure out a better way to find mobile engineers, to develop mobile talent, to invest in that talent, uh, or those that are interested in, in working on uh, mobile, uh, finding mobile engineers or, or working with mobile contractors. Okay. Well, thanks, Nathan. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Appreciate the research you put in. Uh, it was a lot of fun. 